I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, F for Fake. We are back! Yes, uh, and these, this is the atypical kind of uh, kind of thing. Normally, I guess we would be talking about comic books or science fiction or robot slavery or something. But normally. This is something a little bit different. <laughs> uh, this month, uh, we are talking about F for Fake. The 1973, I don't know if you can call it a documentary slash video essay, (laughs) the last film directed by Orson Welles, the guy who gave us Citizen Kane, The Magnificent Ambersons, Touch of Evil, The Other Side of the Wind, um, one of the greatest visionary filmmakers of all time, the guy who is known for having the career that wasn't after he kind of got... I guess soft he, he blacklisted. Said, he said "fuck you" to too many people, and then eventually couldn't make movies in America anymore. Basically, uh, yeah. he he ran yeah. against McCarthy for Senate. Did he? Yes, yeah, swear what? to God, I didn't know that. Oh. Swear to God, yeah. Oh, I love him even more. A little high school rivalry or something, you know. <laughs> so here to talk about the final directed movie by Mr. Orson Welles, we have, of course, uh, returning guest, librarian, friend of the show, Kit DeForge. Hey, Kit. Hey, howdy, hey. <laughs> it's nice to be back. It's glad to have you back. This yeah. has got to be the first time we've had you in the studio in, has it been two years? Almost two years at this point. I'm trying to think the last thing we did. Probably Jingle All the Way. I think that might be yeah. it. I think you, yep. I think looking at the, you may be of one of the very last people that we talked to before everything shut down. So you're blaming me. <laughs> I think we are. It, this wouldn't be the first time. All right. <laughs> so we lied to you. Maybe that's appropriate for this. I mean, this, this is... is actually an intervention about you causing the pandemic. <laughs> damn it again. I thought this whole podcast was about lies. It right? is, this is going to be about lies. Yes. Um, because illusion. this movie. Yes. This <laughs> illusions, Michael. Um, but yeah, th- this movie is an odd one. And I don't know if it's easily summed up. However, is this directed by Orson Welles or is this a Francois Reichenbach movie that was basically taken over by Orson Welles and made something totally different? That's, yes. That's what I don't know. Yes. It seems fake from the beginning because you're like, is this your documentary, Orson Welles? Or did you just add your narration over it and think, you know, put your flag in it and take it from somebody else? So I guess <laughs> we're going to give you the thankless job kit. The question we always ask at the beginning of these episodes, if you had to sum up this movie in a paragraph or two, what is F for Fake all about? Oh, shoot. Um, when when you want to be talking about Howard Hughes, find out that someone else talked about Howard Hughes, think that person is a fake, get bitter about it, um, turn around and talk about what truth and authorship is in the first place and what uh, what intersections between illusion, storytelling, and what we choose to believe exist and how we define reality and experiences around our desire to accept the fake. Um, Hmm. It's largely centered around uh, art forgery as, as far as it goes. And the concept essentially of, I think creative forgery in that sense and whether or not that can exist. Um, 
at what I got from it is whether or not true singular authorship can exist, whether expertise can exist, mm-hmm. um, and what sort of things are arbitrarily accepted concepts or guideposts that don't actually give us any further information about the things that we're consuming and the questions that that brings up in a viewer or consumer of media and of information as a whole about what you can trust essentially in truth. That's a really wide net, I think, trying trying to explain this. Um, but essentially, I think it's just the dance between what you what you want to believe, what is actually true, and how relative that can be for people. Yeah, it's it's hard to pin this down. Very hard. Well, I and, mean, I mean, the 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 sort of the brass tacks part of it is is talking about a specific person who is an art forger, Elmer Dehori, uh, Elmer Dehori, and his biographer Clifford Irving, um, and their sort of twisted relationship. And then, of course, then Orson Welles brings himself into it. He wants to talk about his own work, right? He wants to talk about who I guess he hates Howard Hughes and wish he could have made Citizen Kane Howard Hughes. And also he perpetrated a hoax as well with the War of the Worlds. So it's basically about it's about people who are liars, essentially. Um, And Orson Welles wants to tell us, the audience, is that, listen, I'm the only honest charlatan because I'm an actor. And you know that whatever you're seeing on on screen, is just me pretending to be someone else. But it is also everything that Kit said it was. It's much, much, much more meditative on the idea of accepted truth um, and reality and all of the things that are orthogonal to storytelling and art and you know, and I communicating ideas through media, but it's also done in a completely non-linear fashion, right? So you, the movie starts by throwing you into the deep end, and then you learn to swim as you go. It would so, have been really confusing for an audience in 1973 who was not used to art house movies, which is where this sort of takes its its uh, its uh, heritage from. Where there's lots of crazy edits, and then of course the movie starts with about seven minutes of men leering at. Uh, Orson Welles' impossibly hot girlfriend walking down the street as part of some quote-unquote movie that they were filming, which I don't even know if it was a movie. I think this is just one of their things, and they found that it was thematically consistent. I definitely get the impression that these guys... These guys bring other people into the bedroom. That, that's, their, that's the vibe I get sure. between Orson Welles and Oya Kodor. Right. But it, it is a weird way to open a movie, and then it transitions into... A discussion about the man uh, Amir and Elmir, uh, who spends the last years of his life on the island of of Ibiza, um, and I think it's most of the meat and potatoes is centered around basically one day, right? Yeah. It feels like there's a, there's a dinner party and there's like a lunch at a cafe and there's people talking and coming around, and it feels like all of that is probably done in a day. And everything that you're seeing Orson Welles is filmed in a studio and sometimes it's cleverly shot and edited to make it look like he might have been there, but he really wasn't. But he's also a participant. You do see him briefly interact with Elmir um, on a couple shots. So the the way I can sort of gather this to sort of get to the center of the onion is it seems like this started out as a documentary by his friend, filmmaker Francois Rickenbach, who wanted to make a movie about Elmir Dehori, who was a recently exposed art fraud. He was like the greatest art fraud of all time, that there are apparently paintings hanging in 
famous museums that he did and he knows he did and that a lot of people are really afraid of what will come out because of how successful he was, that there are artists who will claim, you know, the original artists that they did that piece and Elmir knows it was him. That's how convincing his fakes are. So his work was just exposed by a writer named, uh, Clifford Irving and Clifford Irving during the making of this movie, which initially apparently um, Orson Welles was just hired by um, Francois Riekenbach to be the editor. Suddenly then it's revealed that Clifford Irving is a fraud too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that after he'd wrote this book exposing um, Elmir, he was writing another book about, you know, weirdo, germaphobe, billionaire, uh, recluse. OCD Howard, sufferer. Yeah, yeah. Howard yeah. Hughes, who had been at that point, I probably for more than a decade, hiding in either a bank vault, uh, collecting toenails in jars, the way some people said, or just living in Las Vegas at the top of a hotel, the entire floor of which he'd taken for himself, that he'd hidden himself from the world. And replacing his doorknobs every time he touched them. Yeah. That's a personal favorite Whoa. Howard Hughes fact. <laughs> the, I'm fascinated by Howard Hughes. That this is the, you know, the guy was like a legend and how much you didn't know about him and how much right. those facts were filled in by the public mm-hmm. who wanted to make it more lurid and weird as it went. Mm-hmm. And so this is a kind of irresistible target for someone who is a charlatan to tell a story about, right? So yeah. basically through an incredible fraud, Clifford Irving had convinced the world and including Howard Hughes' own massive company, which he didn't even communicate with himself. So I guess he's just like living in a dungeon somewhere that's completely germetically sealed. And the company is just kind of going about its business um, all this time. And he managed to, Clifford Irving managed to trick that company into giving him a massive advance for a book through uh, fake notes and signatures that fooled handwriting analysts. Uh, into thinking that Howard Hughes had hired him, Clifford Irving, as his biographer to write his story, to tell the things to the world that I don't want to tell from inside of this this hermetically sealed building, that I want to tell everyone in this tell-all book. And then he was exposed as a fraud himself. So that's happened while they're proposing this movie. And I think at that point, everything got out of uh, Francois Riekenbach's head and more than just edit this movie, Orson Welles completely recreates it and turns it into something that isn't really about any one thing, but it's about all of these things. Well, I think about Kenneth Anger and, um, and Hollywood Babylon mm-hmm. as, as a similar sort of manifestation of this desire that we actually have, which is what you were saying, Mike, is um, to expand upon the weirdness, essentially. And open, or the opening of this movie... Um, you have Wells doing his magic with a coin and a key and a coin and a key. And he tells you right at the beginning, you know, that this isn't a metaphor for anything. This isn't a metaphor for anything. This isn't meant to stand in as anything. And then after that fact, he then tells you everything he tells you for an hour is going to be the truth after he points out that it's not a metaphor. And I keep thinking on that, essentially, in, in, in the sense that he puts this here to be like, there, there is something you want to see happen. You, you're expecting a result. You're both the audience and an actor of your own. Because while you know this is an illusion, you want to be a part of it so much that you're willing to accept anything to make that magic to happen. And so as, as he's turning this key and coin with this child... 
he's I feel like he's showing you in the beginning like you know that some of these claims are ridiculous you have to know you have some degree of intuition and insight of your own but you abandon that when you step into media and step into art because you're not here for the truth you're here for the story. You're yeah. here for the illusion and the experience. The idea that art is the the lie that tells the truth. Yeah. And even the idea of, of stage magic, stage magic is essentially kind of a consensual fraud mm-hmm. that you know you're going to be tricked and you don't want to know how you were tricked, but you enjoy being tricked. Yeah. You want to not know how something was done. I and think I think about probably that I'm carrying that forward is, yeah, he's 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 exposing to you. He's he's telegraphing. The whole idea is that this is going to be an exercise in determining how how you how well you can be tricked if you are susceptible to being tricked, mm-hmm. and the answer is of course you are. Um, the next thing that you start seeing is that the movie is a fucking crazy masterclass in editing, and it's the type of editing that we, after twenty plus years of reality television shows, we all know like these things are are assembled in a way to give you a sense of a drama or a reaction that didn't ever really exist. They created a, nar- a narrative that is not reality, that is, in fact, the op- the opposite of reality, that it's totally constructed. In this, this is what Orson Welles is doing. Orson Welles himself and maybe somebody else is helping him, I'm not sure. Um, they are intentionally have this crazy, frenetic documentary where time and character and conversation are all sort of mixed up and uh, you know he's like you. You got to catch up with me. Yeah. Um, you want to. You kind of keep wanting to doggy paddle up up to the surface to catch up with him. And that is just his genius mm-hmm. about making this a thing of it being like I'm going to edit this in such an insane way because really it is actually probably was pretty boring when you consider they have video of you know they had footage of them eating lunch at a cafe and eating dinner at a restaurant and this noisy dinner party that they try to get interviews at or whatever it was probably not all that interesting if you were to just watch the film from beginning to end but i mean if it was a linear movie like you say it wouldn't be there isn't a lot of substance but no he manages to wring stuff out of it and inject it by not making it a straight documentary by making it a meditation on ideas the question of fakery the question of is there such a thing as fake art? Can somebody be a fake artist? Is art forgery even a crime if you're creating a thing that gets the same the same reaction that a real piece of art would from a quote-unquote expert? That if they have the same sort of emotional, sublime reaction to this creative creation that is put in front of them, even if it's not made by the person you thought it was made by, is it fake art if it still accomplishes the goal of real art? I mean, that's that's kind of what you get into. And that's what I find so utterly fascinating about it. And I think at the heart of it is Orson Welles himself. Um, so I got to ask you guys, where is the first place you encountered Orson Welles? What do you remember him from? Pinky in the brain. <laughs> yes. 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 I'm serious. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's Maurice LaMarche and all that. You know, that's essentially who's he's, who, who he's imitating. Specifically, I think the radio version of Wells um, or the radio persona a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was a very specific experience of watching Pinky and the Brain and my dad coming in and starting to talk about War of the Worlds. And I'm just like, what is, why? Like, what? You know, and I'm a little kid and I'm just like, I don't really understand. And he's like, oh, well, you know, that that voice is really familiar. 
and him talking about how his father enjoyed Orson Welles. And so that's my specific context is mm. through the cartoon, then turning <laughs> to my bampa, um, and being like, well, who was Orson Welles? And then specifically my, my grandfather passed away this year, but like he used to sit down and show me all kinds of movies and then Leonard Malton, the beginnings and tell me, oh, this person did this at this time. This is what was happening in their life. You know, here's the awards it went up for. Here's the year. Here's the actors. Um, watching Citizen Kane with your grandpa and not really understanding what's going on, but knowing that because he said it's important, you're like, God damn it, it must be. That was my first experience too. I mean, other than, you know, Unicron from the Transformers the movie, I was unknowingly my first <laughs> oh, exposure to Orson Welles. Uh, it was like when I was 12, 11 or 12 years old, and my grandpa said, do you want to see the best movie ever made? And how could you turn that down? And he said, but you might be bored by it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to power through it. And I totally fell asleep through <laughs> the first mm -hmm. time. I, but it was that. It was watching it with someone from my family who was like, listen, this is the best movie ever made. You should watch it. Um, so uh, that was my experience too, for sure. Mm -hmm. Same as you. I think I probably saw him for the first time in the Muppet movie. Oh, my God. Because remember, <laughs> right. he's the studio executive that right. signs the Muppets at the end. He has right. a little cameo. Never mind. The standard rich and famous contract. <laughs> but I didn't know that was him. The same way that anybody who is a, an adult celebrity on the Muppets, you don't appreciate until you're older. Yes. Um, but the first time I remembered Orson Welles was in the 1990s when I was in high school, my mom got HBO for the first time. On a satellite dish, not one of those cool trendy satellite dishes, but a big <laughs> satellite dishes that if you had to change it, um, it was going to wake somebody up upstairs. Uh. And I remember during that summer that I graduated from high school, they started airing a 1970s TV movie, you can hear the scare quotes, documentary uh, <laughs> called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, which is all about Nostradamus hosted by Orson Welles. Hilarious. Fantastic. And I just remember that he has this magical ability to make everything sound so ponderous and important. And I remember when he gets to the part of Nostradamus's predictions about the end of the world, he's like, now the next moment, the next part of this film, you may found disturbing. <laughs> yes. And it's lovely. There's just something that is just captivating, even though I know, and Orson Welles knows, that this is all bullshit. This is all utter bullshit, but it sounds so cool when he's the one doing it. Then it's kind of funny with Orson Welles because I've kind of come to the conclusion, because I was trying, trying to figure out, what is it about this guy? What is it about this guy who could have been the next Hitchcock, but because Citizen Kane is loosely based on a newspaper tycoon who basically blacklisted him and stopped him from ever getting another movie made in the United States without tremendous help from his rich friends. Um, what is it about this guy that keeps him this incredibly important figure? What is it that makes him so compelling? And I realized that Orson Welles is made up of qualities and traits that make me dislike a person in isolation, but all together make me love him. Hmm. That... And, and sometimes even though we can, and they would do this on Frank Pinky and the Brain, poke fun at him. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we know him from being drunk in the 1970s wine commercial that he's in. Or losing his temper at a sound engineer while recording audio for a frozen peas commercial. 
And it's fun to kind of laugh at him because he can be incredibly pompous in a Fraser Crane kind of way. So why is he so compelling? I mean, he's a guy who will stride into a room smoking a fancy cigar, wearing a fedora and an opera cape, who will start holding court on things like Kipling and Shakespeare. He'll start speaking Latin to make a point about something that he can be incredibly pretentious, but why do I like him? These are all parts that make me run screaming away from a guy talking to him at a party. He probably it would is an insufferable show off. Well, that, we right? all we all love a showman. Yeah, is the reason. I I think personally because it's again I, I keep coming back to this magician thing. You know, he did magic even for like the USO, and he was part of this like national league of magicians. Is because he comprehended something about people. And that's that we like showmanship. Again, we like deception. We're more inclined to follow a person who knows exactly when to be self-effacing and exactly when to be pompous in order to command a room and to tell you directly who he is. That's, again, I am a charlatan. I am a charlatan. I'm, in that sense, I am honest. It's that yeah, sneaking he has that its own conspiratorial, tale. like, join me yes. in the secret. But he also, yes. he also, and people love that. Yeah. He has a playfulness about him. Mm-hmm. And he kind of is the person for real that a bunch of dude guys in like their 30s who are insufferable at parties pretend to be by affectation. Orson Welles is that he really does love Shakespeare that much, that he really does love doing magic and all of these things. He really has this twinkle in his eye and there's a joy under undercurrent in it that you don't get with those guys because it's just who he is. And that sort of authenticity about him, even when he's lying, is kind of infectious. No, that's the nature of the trickster, though. Like, as, as an archetype, is again, people, people love that because they love to fear it, and they love the mystery behind the thing. You know, the, the shape-shifting ability of a trickster in that sense of, like, my, my honesty is to comfort you. My lies are to delight you. You know, and to get you to think of something differently. And I'm going to lure you into exploring lies because, again, lies, as was Picasso said, I think, in this, like they talk about it as art is there to essentially lie to you to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're using lies to tell truth. And I think that Wells is an embodiment of this concept in that we as people always seek these people out both because they exist as mirrors for ourselves and contrasts to who we think we are. And that leads us to a greater understanding of who we think we want to be again, just by juxtaposition. So, I mean, that's, that's my read on him as a person. I always find a great fascination with people that admit to being liars and that people want to be around that. I kind of get the sense that uh, I don't actually know when he started that this is Orson Welles kind of doing what James Randi had done at a certain point, right? Is that uh, James Randi, I think, it is coming from a, from a place where he's trying to be transparently honest, um, where and it's about basically showing up manipulative assholes, right? That was exposing liars. Yeah, but you, but considering he's a stage magician, and this is true of not just James Randi, but Harry Houdini and a lot of other people, right? Is that when they see somebody who is a fraud, 
because they commit fraud themselves, mm-hmm. they spot the tells yeah. and they start wanting to do what a magician would, which is, I want to know how he does that. Yeah. And the difference between me and them is everyone knows what I'm doing is a trick and that guy's robbing an old lady yeah. <laughs> or making making right. them think they're talking to their dead son. Right. Yeah. And they're touching on something that's far more manipulative and in a lot of ways cruel. So it's different. You can't just say, I'm going to help you find your missing son on a talk show and talk about, you know, you're, you know, oh, he's buried and so and then say, you know, this is for entertainment purposes only, mm-hmm. because you don't talk entertainment purposes only when you're touching on things that somebody is crying about because they desperately want closure in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's different than I made, you know, teller disappear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, I I think, though, that the fascinating part is that this discussion is couched in something that is, is was before and still remains this kind of effete uh nebulous idea of a world that us common folk uh just don't understand like i think that that's sort of the meme that someone has about art especially quote modern art unquote i don't even know what it means to me it's just anything that people make and call art with a capital a um is that we don't understand it but it is given value by some people and so therefore it can command value when people with enough money can use that money to trade hands with each, with each other and He's the the backdrop he's saying is he's letting the 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 liars speak for themselves and Amir's is basically like I'm a guy who's been kicked around my whole life. I was in a concentration camp. Um I was starving in places and I had this talent that I went to school for but no one I, I couldn't make any money selling my art because I'm not part of this world. So how do I make money for a meal? I make something up and people love it. Yeah. So and, I'm a successful. You, can, you I, can perfectly create a Matisse and you can get several thousand dollars for that. Right. Yeah. And then it's like you can tell yourself that you didn't just rob that guy because that guy's turning around and selling it for a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And yeah. and it, the, the justification, of course, is the is totally the economic one, which is like he was poor and he was starving. And look at these people are idiots like these rubes, these self-important intellectual either people who are rich or people who are sycophants of the rich um we'll talk about how great and wonderful something is when everyone knows it's full of shit and so he doesn't feel bad if eventually the millionaire down the line who's purchasing this matisse um you know is parts with two hundred fifty thousand dollars of something that i made in my bedroom you know like that that is sort of the backdrop that he he draws this whole thing around because the guy is somewhat sympathetic I mean, they don't say he says he's like been in prison. They don't say that the reason why he was in Spanish prison was for homosexuality, like, yeah. because it was just in a time where he was a type of person that the laws were. The laws would say this is an undesirable person. Let's take you out. He's living at the graces of someone who's basically using him. Right? He's living in the house at Ibiza for a dealer or whatever. So he really is kind of pathetic. He spent a lot of his years running from the police because he said this is the only thing I want to do. But he's also playing a skill, and that yeah, sure. skill is 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 lying. And I think what you sort of get from Elmir several times is there is a kind of playfulness that he reminds me a little bit of Littlefinger from Game of Thrones, where Littlefinger is a character who is a liar and a cheat and a manipulator, but he hides that by overtly being a liar and a cheat right. and a manipulator. That right. yeah. you you become 
an you treat the thing you really are as an affectation. Like if I was to go into walk around a neighborhood wearing a striped shirt, a bandit mask, and carrying a dollar sign sack over my shoulder, <laughs> and I'm like, "Ooh, look at me! I'm a burglar! I'm walking around! I'm gonna sneak around your neighborhood! I'm a burglar!" And if I do that long enough. People go, look at that guy. He's pretending to be a burglar. <laughs> and I could really be robbing houses during this time. Well, he's built incredible social capital again by using that skill in, in the way that you're describing. Because, again, that thing people people enjoy not knowing what the truth is. They enjoy, you know, the, the drama of the story. So they have that whole bit in there where people, you know, in art world are repeatedly being like, I kind of know. I mean, I know, right? I'm I'm smart enough to have figured it out. I know. So, uh, you know, you're going to admit it kind of thing. It's just, well, you know, and just the right amount of cagey sort of thing. But you play to it just enough to be like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of thing. Like, but when the art world is such a, um, a world of rich asshole gatekeepers, people who take something that should be shared with the world because it's beautiful is, and we take an experience and make it niche that yeah. your common person doesn't understand the sort of sublime beauty of art because we hide it from in private collections or behind glass. And we have this elitist gatekeepy attitude of, oh, well, of course I know what a fake, you know, Picasso yeah. is when I see it because he would never do it in such a fashion. And then as, as Clifford Irving said with a certain painting, go to show that to various people in various museums and say, right off the back, that's a fake or that's real. And they'll immediately agree with you. Oh, of yeah. course, of course it's real. I know that because, and then there's no consistent answer and you realize that they're phonies too. Well, the emperor <laughs> has no clothes and that's, again, it's an entire house of cards. And we have this rich it's... elitist gatekeepy world and there's a person who's ripping those rich elite gatekeepy people off. He comes a bit of a folk hero. Well, I, I just reminded, um, Although he's he's offensive in many ways, the Sasha Baron Cohen has the Bruno character, and mm -hmm. I don't think this was the movie. I think this was something else, um, where he is talking to people who work in the fat, who are like I don't know if they're actual fashion designers or people who work for like magazines in the fashion. And so he's do he basically is sitting them down in front of the camera, and he's like I'm under just want to spitball, and he's asking about certain things, and he's like, what do you think about yellow this season? And then the person was you know, and the person says. You know, oh, I think yellow is great. It's fantastic. And then he turns around and he basically asks the same question, but to the negative. It's like, why do you think yellow is an awful color for this season? And the person immediately just does the same thing with the opposite yeah. opinion. And you really do get the sense that there are people for whom they would just turn because their their expertise is part of the reason why they exist. Um, they would just turn around and say something that it is immediately contradictory and it doesn't matter. And that's just like it would roll off their back. That's just part of their thing. It's that kind of distrust that you would have of experts. And they make a he makes a pretty solid point of laughing at the experts. Like this is the the as much as he you want to shame, say the art dealers or the people who are really they are the ones who are enabling these crimes, are the, the people who want to make money in between. It is really the experts who enable those dealers to then go the next step and, and you know, authenticate these things uh, of, of being actually real. And because those experts are just as fallible as anyone else and the criterion by which they judge them is obviously so nebulous that there's no standard. The standard is their opinion, right? There's a, there's yeah. a bit in this movie where uh, Francois Reichenbach is talking about wanting a certain kind of painting from Elmir. 
And Elmira going, oh, I don't know. These are just the only ones I have. And he's like, oh, okay, because I was looking for this very specific piece by this artist. And then, like, a couple days later, Elmira calls him up. Wow, you're a genius. I Yeah, I just I found this in the back of my basement, and it's exactly what you wanted. And uh, he's just like, and I didn't ask a lot of questions. And Orson Welles is like, yeah, because you didn't want to know. And you also don't want your friends to know because you don't actually care if it's real on some level. Because you can then turn around and say, I have this piece. I have this piece. Because you know, if you understand social engineering well enough, again, it's... You know that people want to believe certain things and you know that people want to believe they're a part of something like with those art dealers and experts. What's essentially happening is like you just keep giving the audience what they want. Yeah. And again, they will fall for it and they can know they can even know that they're falling for it. And there's no problem, which is why you don't have to stop. You know, the, the same people are enjoying the fact that you're a rogue, the, the bored rich are enjoying the yeah. fact that you're here to deceive them on some level. And he kind of wears it like a badge. And he has these little giveaway moments that he has, like at the beginning when he's talking about why he settled in Ibiza. And he talks about, oh, I was never finding happiness. And I kept moving from place to place in America. And I was like, because you're running from the cops. <laughs> and he, so he found a place in Ibiza. And he says that he loved about the island. He said, and this is a quote, the island is simpatico, as they say in Chinese. <laughs> ah, yes. And I just, it feels like these are little bits that he throws in there, and it feels like he's fucking with the audience. Like, <laughs> he is knowingly an unreliable narrator, and he says later that Ibiza doesn't have a sort of a, a snobbish society the way they have in, quote, London, Paris, and Omaha. Uh, <laughs> and every yeah. bit of it feels like he's he's putting Easter eggs in there to fuck with people. <laughs> and it's kind of delightful because he knows that he's a rogue too. And the fact that he's kind of exposed, but not exposed enough to go to prison, is exactly the place he wants to be. Because it makes him an interesting character to host a party. Right. I, th I think that's interesting too when you're talking about the locations and that and the, the jokes that are in there. I... I know that my brain snagged really hard on that conversation um, between him and uh, Ho Hoya. I have trouble saying her name. Oh, uh, Oya. 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 Thank Oya you. Oya. Yeah. And they have that back and forth together kind of thing. And they're listing off these different locations of these Picassos. And one of them is like Cincinnati. And like it in my brain it kept sticking out like a sore thumb because of the kind of joke of that too is that by comparison at least in my mind for the art world i don't go like oh my god cincinnati up there with like <laughs> paris and that's and that's the joke right there is like they got a hold of the picasso you know and isn't isn't this the thing that would raise your eyebrow versus all these other famous art galleries not that cincinnati doesn't have and the funny you know, thing is, it could be Paris that has the phony. Mm -hmm. It might be Cincinnati that has the real one. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't know. And the thing is, it's like people want to expose him because he makes them look like fools, but they can't expose him because they'll look like fools. Because if you shake out all of the phony things in this, how many, 
how many museums have made all of this money by saying, hey, come to see this brand new painting by this great dead master. We have it. It's this, It was found in somebody's attic and oh my God, it's incredible. And it's been authenticated by all the experts. And then you find out that this old fraud did it living in Ibiza, who's basically been on the run from the cops for several decades now. I have a famous shroud I would like to show you <laughs> if anybody's interested, you know, as far as that goes, it's just pay a little bit of money this definitely was over jesus's body so and he can rip you off but you're going to make so much more money getting people to come see it or selling it to some rich guy who will keep it in a private room collection but again it kind of gets to the other part of it and maybe it's just you know my political leanings but there's something about the idea of art being turned into a commodity Mm -hmm. and a status symbol for very rich people that i on its very base level, I find offensive that there's something about that, that art really is for everybody, you know, not to, qu- to quote a famous grave robber, it belongs in a museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, so for this movie, it just is a pure happenstance that there was a documentary that came out I think last week that I saw yesterday called the lost Leonardo. And I vaguely remember this from 15 years ago or so, but like in mid two thousands, um, these people found, what was it's undoubtedly like a portrait of Jesus from Italy from a certain period of time, but it was like super in super bad condition. And um, they brought it to New York and uh, to someone who was sort of a, an art, art re- re- restorer and repairer. Oh, no. And they basically it, it the, the thesis of the, of the movie, or at least what I took from it was it was this big confidence game by people to convince them that that painting was made by, Leonardo da Vinci and not by uh real any kind of expertise but just by the tacit complete complicity of a bunch of people experts included art restorers people who wanted to sell and buy it people who wanted to put it in a museum so they could raise a lot of money through ticket sales to museums got to this point where they took a painting that was paid for eleven hundred dollars um from somebody's collection in New Orleans to sold to the Saudi Arabian prince for four hundred and fifty million dollars at the end um <laughs> And the idea of the journey of this starts with people who are just plucking this shit out because they know, hey, I could turn around a couple million dollars for doing this. Um, perpetrate what is probably like the biggest, the biggest scam in the art world that has ever been ever been had. Um, so much so that you look, you read on Wikipedia now, and it's like they just have. There's just enough people that have said like, oh, we don't have any doubts. There's enough people that are experts in between, along with the n- numerous experts who are also saying this is really improbable and it's really unlikely to base and all the institutions just shrug their shoulders and are like, okay, it's real. People want a lost masterpiece story to be true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they want this story to be true. And also if you found it uh, and you're the person that authenticated it and you were in the room with it and now you're part of that story and it's the same way that people will come forward with crime details mm-hmm. because they want to be part of that story. Right. There's something that's exciting about thinking you were involved in some small way. Yeah, in incorrect crime details. Yeah. As the statistics bear out. <laughs> is that people people frequently they talk about eyewitness testimony. That people will frequently fill in details because they want to tell you a story. They want yeah. to remain involved. And that's why you really can't trust eyewitness testimony is because there is a certain point that when investigators are talking to people like this, they have to have a metric, essentially, of like, is this a person who enjoys the attention? Is this a person who 
enjoys telling a story. Is this a, a person who has any authority to be able to make the claims of the things they think they saw? You know, and I, I'm really interested in what F for Fake is doing on this concept of, again, like authorship and truth, authorship and truth. This idea, again, that if you want this painting to be, you know, to be real, you decide that it is. And then that question he puts in there of like, but if you were fooled, if it was beautiful, if it was enough for these people to choose to believe that it was a thing, does it matter mm -hmm. who the author is? And furthermore, Picasso isn't even the author in that sense of his own work, yeah. Yeah. which is I why I think it's interesting that she's in the story yeah. in that sense is because he does not have a subject. He does not have anything to say in these senses without the involvement of this other party who is in a sense also part of the art just like every viewer is mm -hmm. part of the art every consumer so maybe we should describe the fact that uh uh Warson wells sort of divides the movie into sort of two parts one of which he's telling basically the story about emir and his elmir and his biographer uh irving um and sort of and howard hughes and all of that sort of thing and where he says you know this number of minutes of this movie is going to be truth and the rest of it is going to be lies. And they have this thing that kind of feels like they're padding out time a little bit, um, where they create a scene between Orson Welles and Oya Kodar, um, recounting a story, a story of hers about her grandfather, who was also apparently an art forger, and her staying in the same village as Picasso, because she, and she posed for Picasso's paintings. And it's all done in this, like, it's on a soundstage, and they're doing all these shots, and it's a scene from a movie, and that's what it looks like, a recreation. And at the end, he's like, everything I've been telling you is a lie. And it's clearly the, the most obviously ridiculous stuff, and it almost somewhat pays off because you like Orson Welles to stop and have a soliloquy every now and then. Yeah. And he does that a few times. Yeah. You enjoy it, but in the end, you're sort of like, well, this feels like it's padded for time in this movie. But it's also compelling. And what I It's all right. I like it a lot because it's, it's right. also it's it's very artsy, but it, it's too long, I thought. Are you kidding? No. I love it. I, I love it so much. No, I, I when you, I'm sorry, when you were talking about editing and talking about this like dog paddling to keep up sort of thing. Again, I I feel like 88 minutes went so fast and that could be because I literally watched it twice today before <laughs> I came here. It went that quickly. And then furthermore, I plugged in my phone and I continued to listen to the movie again while I was driving here as it went. Because for me, it went so quickly with how he's adding these sort of like partials and, and stories and even, even things that tend to go a little bit longer. It's again, because he's introducing this to you as a magician, as an illusionist, right. is this idea that you have to keep their attention on something long enough to be doing that as the distraction. He he might be doing a thing as where he's making that part homework for you. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's the whole thing too, is, is it's somewhat didactic, is he's trying to tell you all the ways in which truth and authority and whatever and stories can lead you into something into a wrong assumption right so he's kind of basically saying like I'm, you're going to take the truth class with orson wells for this hour and then here's your homework take it home you're sitting in the theater and watching but he, i think he give, he gives a story that feels too good to be true but you also want it to be true yes right and i yes. think what i like about it is that it's also eminently quotable but it's done as if 
it was a stage play between Orson Welles and Oya Kodar. And Oya Kodar is playing Pablo Picasso in right. this. Yes. And he's playing Oya Kodar's grandfather. And it's a confrontation between Picasso, who thinks that a confidence was broken between these paintings that he'd done of Oya Kodar that she had put in a gallery that he was afraid she had sold as part of this spoken agreement that this was between the two of them and possibly a lurid affair they had. And this guy, and she, he storms out to go to this art art show, and realizes that none of these paintings are him, but they're being they're being shown as if they are his. <laughs> and now he's just fucking confused because <laughs> he went in there expecting to see the portraits and the the paintings of Oya Kodar, but they're not there. And instead, these are all forgeries by her her grandfather. And suddenly, there's a new there's a new era, the new period of Picasso. That's everyone is saying is utterly brilliant, and he's gonna getting he's getting to to bask in the glory of what a genius he is by all of the experts and the beautiful serious rich people, telling him how great he is. So, and then going to confront the person who actually painted these glorious arts, and you wonder how much of that glory and how much of that genius is being given to these paintings because the experts who look at them think that they are done by this genius rather than this old man who's dying in a small room. And would they still think they were genius if they didn't have that story? And mm. that's what I think separates expertise from a kind of phony expertise, mm -hmm. where if you're an expertise in the field of, say, mathematics, you have to show your work. You can actually turn your work into numbers. You can do the same thing with chemistry, but with art, you're effectively trying to do that with something that either it touches you or it doesn't. And you're trying to turn it into something subjective into something objective. And what I love about um, Orson Welles in this moment is it's probably, to me, the most quotable line in the movie where, you know, Picasso through Oya Kodar says like, well, are you going to confess? And he says, confess? Confess to what? To what? Yeah. Committing a masterpiece? Yeah. And I love, I love that line so much. And I'm like, but is it a fake painting? It he it's not like a fake car that I sold you where you turn the key and there's no engine. It's not like fake medicine that doesn't do the thing. It does the thing that art yeah. does. Mm -hmm. He didn't lie to you. You lied to yourself. You again wanted to. You know, and that's and I think we're we're talking about that same kind of thing of of the movie itself also being a conduit to turn around and say i am teaching you how to look for truth i'm teaching you to be an expert on vetting this thing this is why i'm telling you what you know i'm asking you these questions of how you determine this sort of thing and then the audience sits around it's why a24 movies are popular um the audience wants to feel smart did you they just throw feel... some shade on a24 100 percent. yeah <laughs> okay. absolutely or as we'll I, talk about i should later. say i should say one third but i'll get into that at but some i can point. say i agree with you but i also disagree with you <laughs> yes and that's the point i love them but you're also right <laughs> yes um no it's the thing is um and that's why i bring up a 24 is people like to feel smart they like to feel again oh, yeah. put in on on the the depth of the thing. As someone's telling you that something is deep, someone tell is. Telling I would argue, what true. the fuck is wrong with that? Because being paid to feel stupid is a pretty bad trade. Yes, and that's, <laughs> that's exactly a really bad deal. But, no, but that's for, exactly what I'm getting at. But that's for exactly, bored elitist rich people, they're not just laundering their fortunes and hiding them from the tax man. They're cultured. <laughs> yeah, I'm <Yeah>. smart <laughs> for hiding my money this way. Yeah. 
But it's, again, it's, we want that and it isn't a bad thing to want that because again, social engineering, these things are working because people all have the same craving of relevance and Mm. the, the artist, you know, it's Picasso, you know, has this whole hang up thing where it's like, there's already the relevance there. And then someone comes up and they're using the fact that you are relevant and they are doing what you are doing and they're spitting in your your face mm-hmm. because as as she says in that conversation he's the most humble man he doesn't even sign his name right. and that's the <laughs> ultimate that's the ultimate again is because if the rich if the you know the wealthy and the elite are the ones that decide what has value they don't even know what value is and this guy doesn't even care to be the one to be telling them that they don't right. know that is what's amazing but to what, me. Why why does art have value? Is the kind of the mm-hmm. question. Is it value because this specific person made it, or is it value on its own? Is there something inherently beautiful or skilled, or something that touches well, you emotionally? Obviously, the story around it sometimes too. So the Lost Leonardo movie had this great uh, thing where they were talking about how Leonardo da Vinci paintings really until the latter half of the 20th century were not all that popular in the Western hemisphere. Like they were just not a big thing. And in America, it became a big deal because during John F. Kennedy's presidency, they had this big diplomatic trip to Italy and uh, whoever the prime, the president was at the time loaned the Mona Lisa to the United States. And so it did like a tour. And the guy in the movie describes it basically as it being a watershed moment, not just for Leon, not just for Da Vinci, but for like the idea of creating this mystique of this, you know, this grand master that everyone had to see. And he said that it was like the most popular art event in American history because people lined up because they didn't necessarily want to see the Mona Lisa. They wanted to have seen the Mona Lisa. So part of it is also the fact that people want to have this experience of saying, I was one of those people. Don't yeah. forget about me. I'm part of the story. I yeah. was saying Boo Earns. Yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> no, it's, I, but I, I like this. Which is also probably because... one of the cool things about the people who listened to the War of the Worlds uh, thing is that the, of the interaction, I'm sure there were a lot of people who were so happy for years after to tell other people the story of like, well, this is what happened in my town when we heard World I had World a neighbor yeah. that, that yeah. got down into his bomb shelter yeah. and I had to talk him out of there for several days <laughs> because suddenly it's a story that I have a part in. It's not just me relating a Wikipedia st- article. I have a personal part of this story and something about that makes me important and yeah. it makes people want to listen to me and a lot of people just want to be listened to. Um, but it kind of gets to me is, again... What makes art valuable? What is, and this is, I guess this is the hard question because we've been talking for a while now with a definition in all of our heads, but what is art? No. (laughs) As the person who has majored in painting and illustration in the room, no. I'm going to go ahead and just say no. Um, What I am going to say instead is what makes an artist a master? Mm-hmm. What makes a masterpiece a masterpiece? Like what what is any of it is kind of to me the wrong question. Okay. At least just where I come from is just the I think the point of the movie is continually saying like where does value come from? If this person doesn't sign their name to this piece and yet everyone believes that they are the master in this where is that coming 
where is that sense of value coming from for the person that does it other than just the money, obviously, and the survival? You could be getting these other things from it a little bit, too. I mean, whether or not the cops are chasing you, I guess. Um, but what I find interesting is it all comes back to the source mm -hmm. in the sense is that you watching the movie are the decider in some senses of what you're choosing to accept and what you're choosing to reject. If you're buying these art pieces from experts, supposed experts, and you're choosing to accept that, you're still the person that is deciding the value on that thing. If you're the creator of that art, if you get famous for it, or if you don't get famous for it, what's motivating you? It's, it's just entirely value in my mind. So I, I feel sometimes that maybe when it comes to art and things like that, we don't really need the definition. We need to self-define value it's it's kind of a waste of time if you ask me i don't know personally i i, I, I want to wholly respect the idea that someone who's clearly spent a lot more years probably fielding really a a academic and probably ridiculous uh, ideas about talking about really higher things about art we we on this program really just talk about it more probably as commodity unfortunately because a lot of the stuff that sort of comes across the table that we talk about is this thing where there are people's creative works that are just just like weaponized they're just so highly attuned to go in there to extract money for as long as they can and then sort of work their way out and very seldom do we get something that like no one's making any fucking money off of this but someone was just trying to get an idea out there just get something out there of themselves um that hopefully other people would connect with um and that to me is the other is the bit is just like well what you we i don't want i also don't want to def define what art is but I, I, I love the idea of the fact that there's that yearning for people to reach out and find and connect with an idea or a feeling or something mm -hmm. um I, paintings are interesting because they're so of what they are is they're just so static and so limited in what they are they're just a so they're just a it's just a square of something in front of you that you hopefully you can stare at the actual thing or reproduction of the thing but that's really all they are they're not it's not a album of 17 songs all recorded in a studio over six months right it's just a thing that's there um is it it's just the things that are there that people want to connect with, I guess. But uh, it, it kind of gets me back to something we talked about before, um, the question of, you know, what language is. How do I take a feeling from one brain and put it in another brain? And art is just a way of doing that. And I think that sometimes the ability to make you... F like, I watch a movie that that touches that part of me and is effective, and I find myself crying about the lives of people who never existed. They, they say art is anything you can get away with, is one of, one of the definitions that I'd heard and one of the few that I choose to accept. Um, we all have heard probably at this point about a banana being duct taped to a wall. Right. And the panic right. that results from stealing a duct tape banana to a wall because assigned value. And what's interesting to me is that people focus on the banana. They're like, the banana, the banana, the banana, the banana's not art, the banana's not art. It's like, no, the act of stealing a banana from the wall is. A painting is not a static object. It's a collection of action. Every single thing you're looking at is 
hours of action. No, but it's movement. I guess what I'm saying is that it does. It's not something that, pro- that pro- progresses through the fourth dimension. It's something that's entire. That is its entire face and what it is. At least, at least it doesn't move. It doesn't move. It doesn't change with enough. It's a very. What would, would you say? It has a very low um, entropy, state of entropy. It 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 is in the state that it's in. It uh, it represents a work of a lot of things, but it stays in roughly the same shape and form uh, as in your experience as sort of a single. I don't even. Okay, I'm a, a single mode. I guess. Is well, the way it's to a, think about it's it. a freeze frame of time that's made out of a bunch of other time yeah and also for the person that created that thing and that time that's all that time that's all that experience that's all that anger that's all that um investment that's all the you know it's the supplies it's the nights and nights of thinking about god knows what that yes maybe you see a thing in a frame but what's contained within it are things that you can't necessarily access. So one of the things people try to do is they try to interpret art. They try to say, see, the brushstroke like this indicates this or that. Oh, right. I can tell by the fact that, you know, this was painted in this way. That was because he was eating his blue paint at that time. Mm-hmm. Or these sort of, th- again, the, the desire to assign expertise to something that you can't actually access unless you are accessing yourself. It's the same reason the Shroud of Turin was a thing at all is because right. of religion we want to quantify and we want to define an emotional experience if you watch a movie mike and, and you cry and you feel something and you connect with those characters that's something that you create mm-hmm. also you co-create with that film i can watch the exact same movie and i can feel what the hell was he crying for this is this is garbage because every interaction is both of those things you know, the, the painting on the wall is talking to you and you're talking back. And the artist is somewhere underneath trying to whisper something to you and you're trying to hear them. But you can't hear them over yourself. You can also have a profound reaction that an artist never intended and that doesn't make that reaction false. Mm-hmm. Um, because even if the image you're looking at is static, the ones in your head are not. Yeah. And... That's that's the part I find fascinating about it, and that's the part that you can be an expert in chemistry in the sense that there is a reliable reaction that these things always have, and there's a way that you can determine facts about it that will be the same if given the same scrutiny by other people independently. But art, like you said, every person has a different mess of lived experiences in their head that they will process that piece of art very differently. Yes. That somebody who's actually been bitten by a shark will process Jaws differently. Mm -hmm. Someone who's been the victim of a violent crime will process Death Wish differently. Um, That these things do affect the way that you see the world. Uh, The movie John Wick may be unwatchable to some people who just can't handle a movie where anything bad happens to a dog. Yeah. Um, And that's fine. Um, But, you know, chemistry... Helium is always going to have the same atomic weight. Um, And when somebody tries to treat art like it's chemistry, they are only opening themselves up to try 
to look like a fool, I think. They're caught up in the medium half the time when they are doing that sort of thing, because the so-called experts that are verifying, you know, paintings and things like that, they're doing the same thing that was done with the Shroud of Turin. Okay, let's science something into here. So we can tell by the certain minerals that are used in this paint, they were more commonly used during this time period. That is a piece of information that might inform how you look at and experience that art. Sure. Just like saying, oh, yeah, we found this shroud over here or these uh, scrolls, you know, or things like that. And the narrative that you want to believe is that this or that belonged to Jesus because that makes this interesting. And that gives you a sense of reality and involvement in that in some sense. And I think that when, okay. when this is happening with art, it is this very, um, it's this very specific desire to to dispel your insecurities from yourself and to also have this idea that you you need someone else's opinion to be allowed to have your own mm. or you need someone mm. else's input as mm. rather than enough self-knowledge to know how you feel about something. You get these like hierarchies because people don't have this this sense that their own experience is important. It's the critic, the food critic in Ratatouille that goes in and eats the Ratatouille and remembers that his mother made it for him. It's the best meal he ever had because it evokes a memory. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the best movie you've ever seen because you connect it with watching it with your grandfather. You know, this is the greatest thing ever because of something that happened to you when you were six that was reflected in the film. It reminds me when I used to work at Half Price Books, somebody would bring something in and they wouldn't understand that those feelings are not transferable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't translate into an objective value, that this may have a tremendous emotional impact on you, but I can't see that or feel that because the art critic, again, essentially pretends to know an artist better than anyone could know that artist, mm -hmm. that as much as you know them, ultimately... We're not telepaths. Um, and this is a person who's been dead for 300 years. How much could I really know about why Leonardo da Vinci started painting in this way or using this specific brush stroke? Why, you know, it could be something as simple as he stopped using that kind of paint because he was running low on money and this was simply cheaper. That we want to sort of assign this sort of meaning to it, but we're playing with the toy box in our own head rather than the toy box in this artist's head. Um, and I think it's important, I think, to... Art, I think art criticism is amazing in the sense that I also get to know something of the critic. But it's always... Uh, and uh, like You mentioned this before, that you are doing half of the work with a piece of art, that, that there's also what's happening in the mind of every single person that watches it. And there are things that where a person can make their intent well known, um, but we shouldn't pretend that there's this magic code that we can plug into a piece of art and have this objective answer to it. I mean, it, it's it's important to consider part of the idea of the of, of art and especially this kind of art that this that this movie is talking about, where it becomes such a highly prized commodity because. It, there's because it, it, there's only one of it, but also the desire of someone who has enough money and who's reached that part of their life and cares about such things to want to own the experience of it and want to be the one to keep the experience from anyone else. Like part of it, part of it is a is a money game, sure, because maybe I can resell this in five years. It's also a power game which says, "No, fuck you. 
I owned this, mm-hmm. and I am the only. I am the gatekeeper of who gets to experience this. And look at all the tales around why this thing is amazing. Fuck you, it's mine. And that's part and parcel of the that relationship, right? With it as commodity, and th- in this case specifically. But also the the value of it that I feel pressured. And again, this is the thing with say Citizen Kane, is that Citizen Kane, bringing it back to Orson Welles, is considered the greatest movie of all time. And I really think that that hurts the movie in a, in a serious way because people try to grapple with it like it's homework and they don't just let the movie happen because Citizen Kane is a great movie. It's also oftentimes tremendously funny. It's, it's visually stunning. Uh, there are technical advancements in that movie that are insane. When you look at them next to other movies from 1941, uh, Orson Welles, as like a 25-year-old man plays an incredible old man in that movie right. with 1941 makeup and you completely believe him at every age in this movie. That's how good the acting is in it. And it holds up so much better for modern eyes than most movies from 1941. And I think a lot of people are held back by the fact that there's this elite group of of experts that have told us that this thing is important and culturally relevant and it's deep on a way that your dumb prole mind would never understand and because they don't have experience with it they just go i don't want to watch that movie that sounds like eating vegetables (laughs) and they don't feel that way about say like the godfather because the godfather is a movie that does have an important place in the culture and the experience of a lot of people growing up and say sharing that movie with their dad that they know people who love that movie. So it becomes approachable. And even though it's considered a masterpiece, it doesn't act like it's, you know, that's Brussels sprouts that you're being forced to eat. And I think it's a shame. I think that in that way, the expertise of these people have made something more distant and something that is amazing and should be shared ends up being treated as something that stays on a shelf that's only for fancy smart people and I think art has become that too, that this gatekeepery bullshit doesn't make things better. It just makes it more distant and less shared with people. Uh, we could just abandon the experts. And that's the thing is that during the pandemic, one of the things that started happening was museums were doing virtual tours for free for people to view works of art. People were doing this and they were thrilled by doing this. And I remember thinking to myself how funny that is that you're going through a virtual tour of the museum to see these famous works of art. Google image search is right there. And yet, and yet you want to see it at the museum and you're also not at the museum, Mm -hmm. right? Bibles are mass printed. Gutenberg, you know, the printing press, all these other things. It's books used to be works of art. You know, we used to, oh my gosh, illuminated manuscripts, all these other things, gilded or, or, you know, uh, yeah, gilded gold pages. There yeah. we are, illuminated. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they had value because it took time, because it was rare, because not everyone could have it. Libraries, of course, you know, my line of work, once upon a time, it was we have the things that other people don't have. Now it's very much we have the things that everybody wants to have and they're mass produced and we buy 30, 40, 50 of them sometimes because we expect them to fall apart. And we just buy tons because you have to have it and you have to have it now. So now this is the place for you to access that thing. Access is a huge part of my job. And what I find interesting is that we we are living in a time where we can look up any information. You can download any movie. You know, it's it doesn't have to be this art house sort of thing. You can find it if you're willing to look. 
you know, you can view the Mona Lisa online if you're willing to look. And so I feel like experts are in a place of desperation in some senses where they're like, but we're relevant. We're relevant. We're the ones that decide. We're the ones that decide whether you experience this and how valuable it is. And people instead are turning around going, okay, I know what that work of art looks like. And guess what? The starry night. I don't know a single 20 year old girl that hasn't at some point (laughs) bought a print of starry night or this cheap printed canvas from Ross of some famous Gustav Klimt piece and hung it up in their house to indicate their taste. You know, it's why every college student has a Beatles poster or a Pink Floyd one. It's the same thing is that someone decided that this is the experience you need to have to be this type of person and you, goddammit, you will conform. You will do the thing too. And it's mass produced and you can have it. And yet the real starry night, there are people, ah, it's over here and it's important because it's mine. We all have access to it at this point. Anyone could see starry night. Is it still impressive to you? If other people, you know, also enjoy the thing. I was there first. I listened to the band before anybody else. You know, I was in the theater when this movie came out and I got to see it and these other people didn't. Some people are just so emotionally invested in liking a niche thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of a thing is that it's something that can be abandoned. And also there are consequences sometimes when expertise is abandoned because F for fake. Mm -hmm. You accept the stories, you accept the narratives that make you feel satisfied, which is how you end up electing a president with no expertise because you hear things that you want to hear. That's... That's how, and, and when experts are telling you, when right. journalists and other people the, are telling you The expertise you fatigue is real, obviously. The expertise yes. fatigue is but super real. But that's the hard they part. They shot is, themselves in the foot. Yeah. Is oftentimes experts lie to you so much that anything that sounds like the opposite of them suddenly sounds authentic. Yeah. yeah. People won't take, my my little sister won't take a vaccine. Yeah. Bah. You know, yeah. because. Hey get, the, hey, get vaccinated. If you're listening to this and you haven't, just get vaccinated. Seriously. Uh, I, I would just say that what does feel the most authentic in this movie, um, Orson Welles taking over another man's movie and making it very, very much his own um, was Orson Welles's line delivery of a ham sandwich. A because ham you know, sandwich. because in that moment, I felt like I would connect it over the 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 decades to Orson Welles' mind. That in that moment, I also wanted to eat that ham sandwich, and he <laughs> did too. <laughs> it's fucking fantastic. Shared experience. I honestly wish that I if if I had people that worked for me, if I had minions. I would love if they just left a ham sandwich for me in the same place every day. You know, I just think that that's the least you can expect out of the people you love. You know? but, but I love it. It's the idea of, you know, do you believe any of these stories about him? Who fucking cares? Yeah. Yeah. And that's his. That's Orson Welles' point in that thing. It's just, mm-hmm. it's a good story. Yeah. Um, why do conspiracy theories go, the, you know, pick up when they do? It's, it's, we, it doesn't feel true. Um, so we we find a story that's more emotionally satisfying, that matches what we expect to get from a story. We want closure. We want all of the pieces, all of the Lego pieces that were in the box are part of the finished product. Yeah. And so there's these missing pieces that are just sitting there. And we're like, what is that? There must be some purpose. Be- and 
we can we can project things onto reality that isn't really there. We can become sort of experts ourselves about things like vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, and what we're here to say is that Radio versus the Martian says S for F for fake is a great movie. Great <laughs> yeah. film. So great movie. I, I guess that gets us into three ham sandwiches <laughs> up. Yeah. The the final question I may have just answered, but is F for fake worth your time? Absolutely. I, I, it was worth my time three times in the last 24 hours. So yes, comfortably, it was it was one of the most enjoyable things I've watched in the last several months because it's worth thinking about what is worth your time and how you choose to spend it and what's important to you in that time. It, it's, it's really funny. This is the one thing about Orson Welles that you can, you can bank on is the fact that he's not, it's not going to be this dour and serious thing and it's not just going to be uh, him reciting Shakespeare, although he does take time out to do some poems, you know, he does, he's going to, but ultimately he's going to, it's, you're going to, you're, he almost in a, some way has, it's almost a crowd pleasing kind of movie because he wants you to have taken something that really should have been pretty boring to show on screen and had it be pretty exciting by breaking it up and making it intriguing in that way. And, uh, you know, for all the reasons why we've said is this could be something that you and your uh, your significant others or roommates could watch and then argue about for an hour. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen very often. You don't normally get that, that feeling after you finish watching something. It feels exciting to be watching it. And then afterwards you're like, bah, I have to say something. You don't want to fight about everything you watch? <laughs> Seriously? No, sometimes you just don't have anything to say about it. And, with, and that's <gasps> a much worse experience when you've got zero left in your brain after you're done. I don't know what that's like, Casey. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I almost get more fun out of a movie that I hated in the sense that if I could really just go to town i will yeah. spend hours looking up why cruella was terrible no that's the, that, i just oh love God. knowing it is the only true knowing. sin of a movie is to be utterly forgettable right that's same that's as it. art it's, it's a, all reaction. it's a common sin yeah. um i will i will say absolutely i think this is worth your time um i mean obviously it's visually stunning it's gloriously edited and insane and i think that audiences in 1973 were not ready for this but i think if you really look at what this movie is the ancestor of, it's not other documentaries. It's YouTube video essays. Yeah. Um, it's a lot closer to something like Dan Olson or Lindsay Ellis or, or those sorts of folks. They're playing more from this where it isn't so much a documentary, but a personal exploration of an idea where the person exploring the idea is part of the plot in a gonzo journalism kind of way. Yeah. And this movie got in my fucking head. Um, I <laughs> thought about questions from this movie for days after watching it, mm-hmm. and I couldn't let go of them. You know, what is art? Uh, what makes art valuable? Is it possible for a painting to be fake if it's really a painting? Is it immoral to turn art into a commodity? And the big one that I still don't have a good answer for, but I'm leaning no, uh, or yes, rather, is art fraud a victimless crime? I think it probably <laughs> is because of the people it's perpetrated on can afford to lose the money and they got out of it what they wanted to get. Let's see. How many questions did you have there? Um, let's satisfy <laughs> folks here. Yes, no, no, no. Yes, yes, maybe. No, yes. And your mileage may vary, right? I don't it, know if that's even the right number of questions and I don't know if there's more. Yeah. But it, this is so, I think that this movie is great. It's a breeze to get through. It's strange. And God, Orson Welles, I could listen to him talk for hours. Yeah. Um, he just has one of those voices. And 
Oh my god. Um, I also just want to say though that it appeals itself to a broader audience because if all you want to do is ogle like a supermodel hot woman who is uh, Orson Welles' girlfriend at the time, um, you can do that too. There's you could just keep rewinding those parts, and that's all you wanted to watch. Just look I, out for cameras. <laughs> yes, that's right. I will say that this made me really want to go revisit Other Side of the Wind, which is the the quote unquote last Orson Welles movie that was redone by Peter Bogdanovich that he did over the in the 70s and I think just mostly the 70s, 60s and 70s um, because not only does it have Oya in it, um, she's a character in Other Side of the Wind or she's a part of a, she's in a, in a movie within a movie, but the same fucking crazy like editing style about it being mostly taking place in parties of people in parties and lots of crazy stuff happening and people with cameras filming it. I feel like there is, this is kind of as a twin movie with that as well. So if people wanted to have a double feature where they would really want to double down with Orson Welles, other side of the wind afterwards would be a perfect match. Mm. Absolutely. So this movie is on HBO max right now. So you can do, you can do that. And there's a chaser of other side of the wind on Netflix. I found it at my library. So it shouldn't be that hard to find if you have a, have a nice library near you. And sometimes you don't even have to physically go in to get it as far as the library thing. If your library has a uh, hoopla, I think it is, oh, yeah. is one of the, or um, canopy. Um, if you're in Washington land, you know, um, I know that Timberland has canopy, but that's a wonderful resource for movies like this is if you have trouble finding it, find out if your library has canopy. Absolutely. Yeah. Kit to Forge, I want to say thank you again for joining us on this. This was a heavier topic. I, did, I had no idea where this was going to go, but I want to thank you for going into some weird places with us. It's my absolute favorite kind of discussion, for sure. I I love friendly arguing with myself and others. So, and it seems to work out okay for the most part. Thank you for having me. You're absolutely. welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And a big thank you to our episode sponsors. We now have 17 of them. Whoa. Boy, howdy. That's spicy. So a very special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvey, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, Jim Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Kelzone, Kalen, and Matt Weber. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it. And if you want to join that illustrious crew and become an episode sponsor, you can just go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or go to radio versus the Martians.com. Click the green button on the right side, or if you're on your phone on the very bottom and uh, check us out. So until next month, thank you and uh, goodbye. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield-Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
now, with your permission, a bit of verse by Kipling. When first the flush of a newborn sun fell on the green and gold, our father Adam sat under the tree and scratched with a stick in the mold. And the first rude sketch that the world had seen was joy to his mighty heart, till the devil whispered behind the leaves. It's pretty, but is it art? It's pretty, but is it art? Well, how is it valued? The value depends on opinion. Opinion depends on the experts. A faker like Elmir makes fools of the experts, so who's the expert? Who's the faker? 